2: This is the Tom Hartman Program. So who's going to win, the bullies or the nerds? No, seriously. This is what I think so much of Trump's campaign, his candidacy, his candidacy back in 2016, the behavior of his agencies, particularly his police agencies, those associated with the Department of Justice and ICE here in Portland and other cities around America. It all comes down to behaving like a bully. And this is one of the most difficult things, I think, for most human beings throughout their lives is how do you respond to a bully? How do you respond to a bully when you're a kid and the bully has the power to overwhelm you? How do you respond to a bully in the workplace, particularly when the bully is your boss? How do you respond to a bully, to a political bully? This is just breathtaking. And the bullies are are basically saying, you know, it's our way or the highway. Don't listen to those damn scientists. We're going to open the schools. We're going to do whatever we want. We're going to, you know, et cetera. For example, in Idaho, this is uh, the Idaho legislature is controlled by Republicans, both the House and Senate. Republican Stephen Thane of Emmett, Idaho. This was reported on Boise State Public Radio, by the way. says basically that public health official scientists are elitists. Because you know, they've got college degrees and they study science. And we shouldn't listen to elitists. Here's literally exactly what he said. These are his words, quote. This is Stephen Thane, a member of the Idaho State Senate Republican. quote, "We're letting a few fearful people control the lives of those who are not fearful. Listening to experts to set policy is an elitist approach. And I'm very fearful of an elitist approach. I'm also fearful that it leads to totalitarianism, especially when you say, well, we're doing it for the public good. Think about how that turns reality inside out, turns it on its head. It it literally is flipping the obligations of government upside down. The role of government as clearly laid out in the preamble to the Constitution, if no place else, is to defend and support and promote the public good, the public welfare. It's it's why we have government. This is the preamble. It's all one sentence. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, to establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity to ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. We want the public good to be defended. That's why we elect people. That's why we have a government. And here we have, let me just read this one more time. This is how Republicans are thinking all around the country. This just happens to be Stephen Thane, a Republican from Emmett, the state senator in Idaho. He says, we're letting a few fearful people control the lives of those of us who are not fearful. Listening to experts to set policy is an elitist approach. And I'm very fearful of an elitist approach. I'm also fearful that it leads to totalitarianism, especially when you say, well, we're doing it for the public good. So for the public good, what are we supposed to do? Nothing. I know that that's, you know, how the Koch brothers traditionally thought. That's what David Koch ran on in 1980 when he ran for president or vice, vice president of the United States on the Libertarian ticket. Privatized Medicare, privatized Social Security uh, and Medicaid and all public schooling in the United States and all regulation of polluting companies in the United States and all taxation of billionaires in the United States. Those were literally his campaign positions. You want to see the whole thing, just Google David Koch and Bernie Sanders. Bernie's got the whole thing on his, on his website, has had it there for years. Easy to find. So is that what you want? The federal government does not protect the people? Or do you want what Donald Trump is trying to create, a federal government that is actively endangering the people? Just letting a vibe. Five million Americans now infected And people say, oh, well, you know, I'm I'm a young guy. I don't have to worry about that. Well, here we've got a guy, Spencer Rolison of Canaveral Groves, Florida. He's not black. He's not Hispanic. And he's not obese. He doesn't have pre-existing conditions. He's a healthy 21-year-old white guy. And he tested positive for the coronavirus in May the, the stories over uh, by Travis Gettys over at Raw Story, uh, the 21-year-old Florida man experiences organ failure after recovering from mild COVID case. He says, I had a little bit of a cough, a slight fever of 99.4, I think, for the first couple of days. And then after that, I lost smell for about two and a half weeks. And that was my only symptom for the entire two weeks. On May 21st, I got a negative test result finally. So he goes back to work. He says, I, you know, I feel fine. I tested negative. I work outside. I was wearing a jacket. It was 96 degrees outside. He you know, was working in Florida and I was still cold. I was sick again. On June 11th is when I started feeling it all again. My fever ended up going to 103.4 for like two days. He passed out during a doctor's appointment. They took him to the hospital and his heart and multiple other organs had failed. He says, something from coronavirus weakened my immune system, which caused me to have all these other symptoms and end up with sepsis and all that. He said, I wasn't on a ventilator. I think it's called BiPAP. It's a mask that they put on your face and it gets strapped on and it basically does the breathing for you. He said, I shouldn't get my heart rate up right now because it can lead to a heart attack, to cardiac arrest. He said, I thought coronavirus wasn't that big a deal. That's the reason I posted on Facebook to my friends and family. Take this seriously. I'm 21 years old. I have a great health record, no issues, and it almost took my life. There's no reason to take this lightly. I can't urge people enough to take it seriously. Meanwhile, over at the Palm Beach Post... The headline an article by Andrew Mara reads, health directors told to keep quiet as Florida leaders press to reopen classrooms. Now, typically, you would think during a pandemic, the decision to open public schools would not be up to the public schools. It would be up to the public health officials. Right. I mean, that's that whole idea of promoting the general welfare that I just read you out of the preamble to the Constitution. Well, here it is. This is the article from the Palm Beach Post. Following a directive from the Ron DeSantis, the Republican governor of Florida, from, from DeSantis's administration, county health directors across Florida refused to give school boards advice on whether to reopen schools in a worsening pandemic. This is according to a Gannett USA Today Network review. For frustrated school board members, it was a puzzling turnabout, writes Andrew Mera. Florida's public schools have long depended on local health, public health directors for recommendations on everything from reducing encephalitis risks at football games to how to test students during tuberculosis outbreaks. But the director's new reticence aligned perfectly with DeSantis' stated goal of pressuring public, Florida public schools to offer in-person classes. And lacking clear guidance from local health directors, school board members in many counties said they, said they felt compelled to reopen classrooms despite serious misgivings. In fact, keeping campuses closed, again, this is from this article in the Palm Beach Post today, keeping campuses closed, they said, risked violating an edict last month from State Education Commissioner Richard Corcoran, uh, you know, DeSantis and Trump toady, which decreed public schools must open, quote, brick-and-mortar schools at least five days per week, end quote. School board member in Lake County Mark Dodd, he says, when we voted to reopen schools, I'll be honest and tell you, it was because we were under an executive order to do so. Do I think they're safe? Absolutely not. Are the bullies going to win or is the coronavirus going to kick their ass? I mean, so far, you got 170,000 dead Americans. It doesn't seem to touch Trump. This is the Tom Hartman program, at least with the Republican Party, which still more than 90 percent supports him. Where does this go? Hi, Tom Hartman here. Hey, my new book is out, The Hidden History of Monopolies, How Big Business Destroyed the American Dream. We're having a coronavirus-safe book tour. I'll be at Powell's Virtual Bookstore event in conversation with David Corton, Tuesday, August 25th at 5 p.m. Pacific time. And on Friday, September 4th at 6 p.m. Pacific time, I'll be at a Town Hall Seattle virtual event. And you can get your tickets for that live stream event at townhallseattle.org. There are also links at tomhartman.com. I'll be taking you from the birth of America through FDR to the Reagan revolution and today. In the foreword of my book, Ralph Nader says, this is the most important dynamic book on the cancers of monopoly by giant corporations written in our generation, end quote. So be sure to go to TomHartman.com and sign up for one of these two great virtual book signings, Powell's in Portland and Town Hall, Seattle. Don't miss it and sign up now. Tag, your it. Michael in Seattle watching us on Free Speech TV. Hey, Michael, what's up, what's, up, what's on your mind? Well, blessings
3: to you, Tom. Um, I was just saying to uh, uh, my wife that the plot against the post office and the Republicans' game is clear. So it, I think it might be time to focus on getting millions of folks to the polls or ballot drop boxes in critical states. And a way to do that would be enrolling the young Black Lives Matter, March for Our Lives, climate activists, just to name a few uh, young people involved in accompanying and being present and uh, observing and protecting the vote uh, by the millions, if necessary. And I believe that those young groups could be enrolled to do that. I think that uh, it's time to stop Uh, focusing on what we know is going to happen with the post office.
2: I'd love your thoughts. I think think to a large extent you're right, Michael. And uh, were I in the leadership of the Sunrise Movement or one of the local Black Lives Matter groups, I would be arguing in favor of shifting to a focus and and by the way you look at the civil rights movement back in the 1950s and 1960s and you see this constant you know movement back and forth and back and forth although they were doing both at the same time but between public demonstration on the one hand and you know a more low profile quiet grassroots organizing people to get them registered to vote so I would put voter registration at the top of the list for any of those groups. I think, you know, I think that's a, a good and important suggestion. Michael, thank you for that. Mike in, uh, from Michael to Mike in Anderson, Wash, Island. Hey, Mike, what's up?
4: Hey, Tom. I'm over here on Anderson Island. The only way on and off the island is by ferry. And so at the, we have a parking ride that people that walk on and off the ferry, they can, you know, park their car and so forth. In the very, mm-hmm. in the parking ride, parking lot. is a drop box. Okay. It's one of many drop boxes throughout Pierce County. A I mean, ballot drop box? Yeah, a ballot drop box. It looks like a big post office, you know, mailbox yeah, like but a without mailbox, a drop down yeah. lid. It's got an open slot. Now, one right. of my fears, concerns, was that for tampering and vandalism, you know, maybe somebody dropping paint down inside or, or dropping flammable material or, or something like that. So, I called my election committee, election board, and asked them what kind of security they have. They have a built-in fire extinguisher, for one, Mm -hmm. and they collect the ballots every other day during voting season. So they have uh, pretty good security.
2: They should have cameras like ATMs do. They're Um, cheap
4: these days. They have a, actually they do have a camera for the whole parking lot, but not specifically for that ballot box. But they have ballot boxes everywhere, I hear the music. But, you know, that's one way to circumvent this post office purge, or whatever you want to call it.
1: the problem is that...
2: Yeah, put it in the drop box. Yeah, I'm I'm totally with you, Mike. My concern is that other states, particularly red states, will not even be putting out drop boxes. But we'll see. Michael, thank Mike, thanks for the call. The only two presidents who were ever impeached, thus credibly accused, of crimes that rose to the level of impeachment, and then those crimes were indicted in the House of Representatives with an an impeachment vote and tried in the United States Senate. The only two presidents that had that happen, by coincidence, and I'm sure it's just a coincidence, are the only two presidents whose Department of Justice's Office of Legal Counsel wrote a memo saying, you can't arrest a sitting president. What he's doing is too important. He's too busy. You can check it out over at TomHartman.com. Tag your it. there's a new website out there. It's called Vote From Home 2020. I'm looking at it right now and how it works. COVID-19 has brought America to a halt. And with it, almost all in-person voter mobilization efforts. Well, they're doing all kinds of cool stuff. In fact, let's, let's check in uh, with one of the people involved with this effort. Ben Tyson is the co-founder of VoteFromHome2020.org. Ben, welcome to the program. Tell us about Vote From Home 2020.
5: Well, thanks, Tom. It's, it's great to be here with you today. I uh, really appreciate it. Yeah, Vote from Home 2020 is kind of our uh, grassroots response to the, both the dual factors of the pandemic this year and Donald Trump's ongoing efforts at voter suppression, trying to disenfranchise voters to keep himself in power. and. Our realization that, you know, we can mobilize activists and grassroots support across the country in order to, to keep him from doing that, from keep him from using COVID-19 as the biggest tool of voter suppression that we've ever seen in our lifetime. So how? So we are uh, reaching out to to voters in swing states, particularly we are targeting voters in North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. These are three states that are battleground states, obviously, in the election. And if we flip these three states to vote Democratic in 2020, even if everything else stays the same, we'll manage to get 270 electoral votes and win. But these are three states that have historically very low rates of voting by mail. We see voting by mail as the key in order to make sure we have a safe election this year so people can vote safely from home over a long period of time. You know, we're, so we're getting out there early. We've already started sending text messages and making calls to voters in these three states to get them activated, get them signed up to vote by mail. And then we'll be sending them mail-in ballots directly with return postage prepaid, with the return envelope pre-addressed so that they can get their mail-in ballot early and get it returned early so that their vote will be counted in the election.
2: So if people want to vote from home, at least in those three states, they can go to votefromhome2020.org. What about the other states?
5: Well, actually, anyone in any state can go to votefromhome2020.org forward slash apply and, you know, click on their state and and get access to find tools on how to register to vote by mail in those states. Our voter mobilization efforts and direct voter contact are are just the ones that are focused on those three states. But anyone can go to votefromhome2020.org forward slash apply to get information and help uh, registering for a mail-in ballot wherever they live. Obviously, in some states, it's easier than, than in others. North Carolina, Michigan, and Pennsylvania are also three states we're targeting because they allow any voter in the state without needing an excuse to request a mail-in ballot even though this is the first year for many of them in doing so on a widespread way.
2: What about people who live in Texas or New York where you have to have a reason to get a mail-in ballot and uh, in Texas in fact I think you have to have a doctor write that reason?
5: Yeah, I mean, there are a number of ongoing court cases specifically challenging Texas's restrictions on voter registration for vote by mail. And in New York, I know there's still some ongoing discussion about expanding that for the general election. But in a lot of these states, I mean, it is true that something that is a hindrance to voters is not being able to request a mail-in ballot easier. New Hampshire is another state where you still uh, require an excuse in order to request a mail-in ballot. And while there are legal challenges going on to those to try and get them overturned or lifted for the 2020 election. This is a, a broader fight than just actually that we're seeing in 2020. And the efforts to expand voting access is something that both predates the 2020 election is something that we're hoping to continue once this is wrapped up and we have a Democratic president in the White House.
2: You know, boggles my mind, Ben, is that, you know, very few people dispute. I mean, you've got crackpots around the fringes with their little lawsuits and things. But basically, there's very few people disputing The powers of federal and state governments during a public health emergency, for example, the power to close restaurants and bars or the power to require, you know, to to limit uh, public gatherings, things like that. Nobody's no rational person is saying, oh, no, you can't do that. But even in a state that's theoretically controlled by Democrats like New York state, they're not saying because of the public health emergency, we're going to make it easy for people to vote by mail what's going on in new york what am i missing here and why is this state of emergency not being more broadly used by other states or is this something that's exclusive outside of new york to states controlled by republicans who agree with donald trump and apparently with you ben tyson that if everybody votes uh you know more democrats get elected and the republicans suffer
5: well we all have to remember that you know donald trump's whole Fundamental premise to his existence and his electoral strategy and success is, is premised on this idea of restricting the number of people who can vote. That's also a big factor in why he won in, in 2016. And he believes that and knows that if everyone came out and voted in for you know in, in the general election, that he would lose. I mean, this is also why we have to remember that Hillary Clinton did win the popular vote in, in, in 2016, and the majority of this country voted for someone not named Donald Trump that year. That said, I mean, Same with Al Gore is, and Bush. Exactly, exactly. So this, this is an ongoing problem, kind of systemic to our country, that we make it harder for people to vote and participate in our democracy just because it's actually a political tactic for one side of the aisle to help them stay in power. But going back to the yeah. issue of like expanding vote-by-mail access in red or blue states, I mean, this is something that we have to remember is, an entrenched voting system, right? That people just aren't used to voting by mail whether you live in in Texas or New York. In a lot of these places, you know, in, in places like Oregon and Colorado, there's a long history of voting by mail. People are used to it and it's very accepted. But, you know, it can be it takes a long time to transition and get people used to new voting systems. That's why with Vote from Home 2020, we're really focused on this component of it that's voter outreach and calling voters and texting them at multiple points along the process of voting to help walk them through it. Because, you know, whether you're an election official trying to administer and institute a new way of voting or a voter you know, trying to, you know, figure out what the new ways of voting are, it can be complicated. And so that's why we really need to focus on the voter mobilization aspects of expanding this as well.
2: We're talking with Ben Tyson. He's the co-founder of VoteFromHome2020.org. Ben, some months ago, Greg Palast had pointed out that about a third of ballots that are sent out here in Oregon don't ever get returned. Yeah, that's because about a third of people who, you know, are eligible to vote don't vote. In some states, it's as much as half. Over the weekend, he was tweeting that uh, over 20% of Michigan people who had gotten absentee ballots, those ballots were not recorded. I don't know if he was talking about they, you know, people just didn't vote and send them back or if they were disqualified. But, you know, we are seeing in some states, some fairly high numbers, percentage numbers for ballots being disqualified because, you know, people didn't sign the outside of the envelope or because somebody challenged it saying that their signature wasn't close enough to the one on their card, on their voter registration card. You know, what's the situation with all this stuff?
5: Well, I think that there are some institutional changes that we can and, and need to fight for over the coming months. One of the biggest ones is fighting to extend the deadline, but ballots can be accepted back at county clerks or local township officials or, you know, it varies state by state, but wherever ballots are sent back to by voters, by changing the deadline so where it has to be postmarked by Election Day, not received by Election Day, you can actually cut down on those numbers of rejected ballots right. significantly.
2: Here in amount. Oregon, though, Ben, our vote-by-mail ballots, they come in a self-addressed stamped envelope. It's it's got postage already on it and it doesn't get postmarked
5: well and that's also one of the important things that you particularly have in oregon there that's a lot of success that we can fight for over the coming months is expanded drop boxes you know actually in oregon most people don't send their ballots back via mail they put them in one of the drop boxes i went went to college up there and i got to do that myself for a number of years i live um, here there you go. Well, so anyway, so but the expanding drop boxes, changing the postmark deadline, and other simple local institutional changes like that are realistic steps that we can take in order to safeguard the elections and make voting by mail more accessible in the general election.
2: There you go, Ben Tyson, the co-founder of VoteFromHome2020.org. Check out that website; a great resource. Ben, thanks so much for dropping by. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. This great talking to you. We'll be right back. Hartman program. VoteFromHome2020.org. VoteFromHome2020.org. We'll be right back. VR training platforms, like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International, are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients.
5: As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop.
2: Learn more at Meta.com/slash/metaverseimpact. As you write your life story. www.georgetown.edu podcast. Hey, did you know that Hillary Clinton actually won Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, North Carolina, and Florida in the 2016 election? It's on page 92 of my new book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Boy, he just came right out and said it. Donald Trump, during his so-called coronavirus briefing, his uh, little mini rally at the White House every day, he just came right out and said it. He is messing with the post office to prevent people from voting. You know, the statistics are all over the place. I spent some time online looking for this this morning, because I saw a statistic quoted last night on CNN, which was that uh, over 80% of Democratic voters intend to or would prefer to vote by mail, and that that is only true of between 20 and 30% of Republican voters. And of course, the big variable is this Trump virus, you know, and that the Trump virus has killed 160,000 plus Americans, and, and the Trump virus has infected over 5 million of us, And it is spreading and it is growing and people just don't want to show up at the polling place. Unless they watch Fox News and they believe that the Trump virus is actually the China virus and it really doesn't, it isn't all that bad and mostly it just kills black people and old people. So Donald Trump came right out and said, yeah, you want money to help out people who are unemployed? Cool. Take the post office out of it. Here's exactly what he said. These are his words. Donald Trump. They want $3.5 billion for universal mail-in ballots. They want $25 billion for the post office. They need that money so they can have the post office work so that they can take millions of ballots. If they don't get that money, you can't do universal mail-in voting, something that will turn out to be fraudulent. In other words, if everybody can vote by mail, Democrats win right across the board, and Donald Trump and the Republican Party lose right across the board, And, you know, that's the outcome that they're trying to avoid by canceling the post office, basically, by killing off the the post office. The Trump campaign itself has publicly allocated $20 million to pay for lawyers and law firms to sue states to block expansion of mail-in voting. Republican lawmakers are uh, doing the best they can to help out. In Ohio, for example, their Secretary of State, uh, Frank LaRose, announced that, yeah, here in Ohio, we will allow drop boxes. You know, so, you know, if you want to bring your mail-in ballot and drop it off, you don't have to worry about the post office, cool, we got a drop box for you. But only one per county. Now, the entire city of Cleveland is in one county, millions and millions of people. And then you got a county out there, you know, a red county in Ohio with, what, 30,000 people in it. They get one drop box, Cleveland gets one drop box. How's that going to work out? I mean, this is fairly predictable. And then this morning, Bill Cassidy, the Republican senator, was on CNN going, well, you know, uh, there is fraud. Uh, uh, Back in North Carolina, there was this guy who was harvesting ballots. Yeah, he was a Republican. He got busted. And he's in prison. Or if he isn't, he's on his way or should be. I mean, but that doesn't mean that there's widespread voter fraud or election fraud that's associated with mail-in ballots. Actually, they're, they're quite clean. They're quite reliable. They're quite safe. But we shouldn't even be having to make this argument. You've got the president of the United States trying to destroy the U.S. Postal Service. More than 1.2 billion prescriptions were sent through the Postal Service last year. And right now, virtually every veteran in America, the VA pretty much only mails prescriptions, pretty much every veteran in America is getting their meds through the post office. And. People will start dying when their medication comes late. Diabetics will go into diabetic shock. People on blood pressure medication will end up with heart attacks and strokes. Donald Trump doesn't care. The Republicans in the United States Senate don't care. Now might be a good time to call the United States Senate at 202-224-3121 and let them know what you think about this. But Donald Trump is actually enthusiastic about this. He's bragging that he's blocking money to the post office just so people can't vote by mail. Mark Meadows has been open. Everybody's been trying to figure out why, you know, Mark Meadows, the Koch head, former head of the so-called Freedom Caucus, that's spelled F-R-E-E-D-U-M-B, caucus in the House of Representatives has been blocking this. You know, he's now Trump's chief of staff. He's been blocking this and people are scratching their heads going, why doesn't Mark Meadows, why is you know why is Charles Koch and his billionaire buddies opposed to people getting unemployment benefits? Well, of course, because they're libertarians and they don't think government benefits should go to anybody for anything. But you know why specifically this? Why this big push? Well, because it's going to help mail-in voting. It's mind-boggling. So I wrote an op-ed which is up at the top of uh, Alternet right now, and it's also over on Raw Story and a few other places. And it's titled, If Biden Wins, Get Ready for Trump to Punish America. And I just want to run this one by you, too, and ask the question, you know, are, do you think Trump is going to get away with this? And am I missing something about what we can do about this? I mean, I'm saying call Republican senators at 202 Tweet at Republican senators. I tweeted at Bill Cassidy this morning saying, you know, that was, that was a pathetic performance on CNN. Am I missing something here? How do you think this is going to play out? I've got a couple scenarios I'm going to share with you. The first is Trump punishes America if he loses. The second, which came from a couple of military people, is Trump basically ends democracy in America if he loses. These are both if he loses scenarios. I don't really have an if he wins scenario because I think it's fairly clear that he's not going to unless he can steal the election. As I've said for years, Republicans can only win elections when they cheat. And, you know, the basic bottom line here is that, you know, African-Americans have, and Hispanics have suffered from voter suppression for well over a century. And now with the post office, Trump is trying to do voter suppression to everybody, which is all those white people out there. And, you know, if you get enough white people pissed off, is that going to stop him? But anyhow, if Trump wins... He has tweeted multiple times that if he loses, the stock market will crash. Well, he's now set up that scenario. Jerome Powell, who is not an economist, he's a former managing director or partner at Carlyle Group, the big fund, private equity fund that funds defense contractors. That's one of the places where he made his tens of millions of dollars, the chairman of the Fed. And Trump brought him in, and he has now invented $7 trillion out of thin air. I mean, literally created it out of thin air and used it to buy stocks and bonds in, in major corporations to support the stock market. It's the only reason the stock market hasn't crashed. So what happens if Joe Biden is declared the winner, say on November 20th, say, say it takes a couple of weeks to count the ballots because of the mail-in ballots and everything else. And on November 20th, the, you know, the, the states all certify, yep, Joe Biden won. Jerome Powell says, okay, we're out of here. We're not gonna support the stock market anymore. And boom, the market collapses. All the talking heads come out in very serious voices and say, well, the market has its own intelligence. It knew that a Democrat would raise taxes and it's gonna crash the economy, so there you go. And the stock market goes down to 7,000 and Joe Biden is now inheriting a worse economy than Barack Obama inherited. When George W. Bush crashed the economy in 2008. And frankly, I think it'll be a worse economy than when Republican President Herbert Hoover crashed the economy in 1930. How do you think this is going to play out? This is the Tom Hartman Program. And in a few minutes, I'll share with you uh, this uh, open letter to General Mark Milley, which uh, is, is worth being concerned about. On this week's Science Revolution, is a drug maker sitting on a possible COVID-19 cure just due to greed? Dr. Steven Anstrop, chief scientist for Polar Bears International is here. Could polar bears be lost by 2100? Food and Water Watch's Tony Corbo dissects Cory Booker's bill to protect meat packers and why it's important. In geeky science, we'll talk about why the coronavirus vaccine may not work well for obese people. Now that's a big problem. And lastly, Michelle Obama speaks about anxiety during the pandemic. And what we can all do tune into the science revolution wherever fine podcasts are available hi tom Harbin here my new book is out the hidden history of monopolies how big business destroyed the american dream american monopolies dominate control and consume most of the energy of our entire economic system they function the same as cancer does in a body and like cancer they weaken our systems while threatening to crash the entire body economic American monopolies have also seized massive political power and use it to maintain their obscene profits and CEO salaries while crushing small competitors. In the foreword by Ralph Nader, he says, quote, this is the most important dynamic book on the cancers of monopoly by giant corporations written in our generation, end quote. It's the fourth in my hidden history series, available where all fine books are sold. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport, democracy starts with you. Tag, you're it. Tony in Shirley, New York. Hey, Tony, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today?
0: Hi, Tom. I believe about two or three weeks ago, I had called in and we had spoken regarding the Postmaster General and uh, the potential for uh, rigging the election. And now, obviously, this has taken on much national clout than the last time you and I had spoken. But that being said, I was curious as to whether or not maybe some of the attorney generals in a majority of the states could possibly get together and file a lawsuit against the Trump administration, hopefully getting it to a higher level of maybe to the Supreme Court in time, letting them know that they're violating Article 1 of the Constitution by what they're imposing on the post office and possibly salvaging this election prior to the mail-in voting.
2: Because Article 1 gives Congress the authority to fund the post office, you mean? Correct. Yeah. Uh, that would be Article 1, Section 8. Uh, yeah. The problem is, and this is the problem at this point in time, I mean, we are you know fewer than three months out from the election, really fewer than a month and a half out, less than a month and a half out from from the beginning of uh, mail-in voting, you know? So we and, should have been a little
6: bit more
0: proactive uh, on this, I guess.
2: <laughs> uh, well, we should have seen it coming. We should have realized that this guy, you know, Donald Trump and the Republican Party will do whatever it takes to stay in power, period, full stop. Uh, including massive cheating, including destroying institutions government you know federal institutions that literally date back to Benjamin Franklin. This is a naked power grab. This is an attempt to turn America into a tin pot dictatorship. Period. Full stop. This is Donald Trump using the instrument of government to assure his own continued hold on power. That's what uh, Lukashenko or whatever his name is did in uh, Belarus. Hey Belarus, uh, you know, yeah, Lushenko. Yeah, I mean, but, this is, uh, you this know, is, you uh, know which, I, I and, and they're in the streets literally today. Yeah, I mean, I saw that,
0: and, and and it's sad what's what's been going on there for many years, but I guess on a different note, I'm just curious as to why, during his tenure, Obama-Biden, when they had Congress, when they had the Senate and Congress, did not try to overturn that 2006 law, which basically forced the Postal Service into into right. bankruptcy.
2: Yeah. You know, there were a lot of things that it would have been nice if Obama had gotten around to. The fact of the matter is he only had 72 working days where he had a filibuster-proof Senate. And then Mitch Correct. McConnell blocked everything going forward after that. So it's hard to blame Obama for this, frankly. I oh, mean, no, it would no, be no. I'm not, I'm, just, I'm not trying to blame him.
0: I'm just kidding. I'm not trying to blame him not by a long shot. Okay. I mean, I thought he was one of the most eloquent presidents, and I ideally miss him. You know, and it's good to hear yeah. his voice again, but it, it would have been nice if I had seen uh, at least some kind of a valiant attempt on their part to try to reverse the course that, that this was put on. Because I, I don't
2: think anybody me. could have predicted 10 years ago or six years ago or whatever, more like ten years ago, I guess. Now that Donald Trump would try to take down the post office—I mean, it's just—it's just absolutely mind-boggling. Yeah, they—you know—the Republicans never should have been allowed to get away with this in the first place. But I get—I totally get what you're saying, Tony. Thank you. Thanks for the call and thanks for the comments and, and the conversation. Stick around. I got to share this uh, this open letter to General Milley. When it comes You can help America return to democracy by telling friends and family how to listen to this and other great progressive programs. Tag your it. So, this is a letter. Uh, this was published over at DefenseOne.com, you know, a, a, a kind of military defense based website. It's by John Nagel and Paul Engling. Uh, John Nagel is a retired Army officer and veteran of both Iraq wars, head of the school at the Haverford School outside Pennsylvania. And Paul Yingling is a retired U.S. Army lieutenant colonel, served three tours in Iraq, another in Bosnia, and a fifth in Operation Desert Storm. They wrote this letter over at DefenseOne.com to General Milley, who is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And they start out by reminding him of his oath, to you know, support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all f- enemies, foreign and domestic. And they, they write, I'm just going to quote from pieces of this, of this letter, if Donald Trump refuses to leave office at the expiration of his constitutional term, the United States military must remove him by force, and you must give that order. Uh, Due to a dangerous confluence of circumstances, the once unthinkable scenario of authoritarian rule in the United States is is now a very real possibility. First, as Mr. Trump faces near certain electoral defeat, he is vigorously undermining public confidence in our elections. Second, Mr. Trump's defeat would result in his facing not merely political ignominy, but also criminal charges. Third, Mr. Trump is assembling a private army capable of thwarting not only the will of the electorate, but also the capacities of ordinary law enforcement. When these forces collide on January 20th, 2021, the U.S. military will be the only institution capable of upholding our constitutional order. Basically, what they're saying is they're anticipating Trump loses And then noon on January 20th is the day that the Constitution and the law say that the White House is handed over to uh, Joe Biden. So continuing with their letter. The stakes of the 2020 election are especially high for Mr. Trump. In defeat, he will likely face criminal prosecution. And then they go through, you know, the Manhattan District Attorney, Deutsche Bank. He pressured the ambassador to Great Britain to move the British open. Many examples that could lead to federal charges. And then they go on to say, uh, Mr. Trump is following the playbook of dictators throughout history. He is building a private army answerable only to him. When Caesar faced the prospect of a trial in Rome, he didn't return to to face his day in court. He unleashed an army personally loyal to him alone on the Roman government. No student of history, Mr. Trump nevertheless appears to be following Caesar's example. The president's use of militarized homeland security agents against domestic political demonstrations constitutes the creation of a paramilitary force, unaccountable to the public. The members of this private army, often lacking police insignia or other identification, exist not to enforce the law, but to intimidate the president's political opponents. These powerful cross-currents, Mr. Trump's electoral defeat, his assault on the integrity of our elections, his impending criminal prosecution, and his creation of a private army will collide on January 20th. Senate Republicans, they write, This is a letter to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Senate Republicans, already reduced to supplicant status, will remain silent and inert, as much to obscure their complicity as to retain their majority. This is why I'm saying call the Republicans in the United States Senate now and let them know what you think about this at 202-225-3121 or 224-3121. They both get to the same place. Senate Republicans will remain silent. Mr. Trump will dismiss the Biden win as fake news. The courts will take months working through the docket, producing reasoned rulings that Trump will alternately appeal and ignore. Then the clock will strike at one minute after noon, January twentieth, two 2001, and Donald Trump will be sitting in the Oval Office. The street protests will inevitably swell outside the White House, and the ranks of Trump's private army will grow inside its grounds. The Speaker of the House will declare the Trump presidency at an end and direct the Secret Service and federal marshals to remove Trump from the premises. These agents will realize that they are outmanned and outgunned by Trump's private army, and the moment of decision will arrive. At this moment of constitutional crisis, only two options remain. Under the first, U.S. military forces escort the former president from the White House grounds. Trump's little green men, so intimidated to lightly armed federal law enforcement agents, step aside and fade away. Under the second, the U.S. military remains inert while the Constitution dies. As the senior military officer of the United States, the choice between these two options lies with you. Should you remain silent, you will be complicit in a coup d'etat. And then they remind Mark Milley of his oath. I, Mark Milley, do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bring true faith and allegiance to the same, that I take this obligation freely. You know, and they go through this whole thing, so help me God. And they close it by saying, the fate of our republic may well depend on your adherence to this oath. Will Mark Milley keep his oath? Will Donald Trump leave office? Will his attack on the post office succeed? Will we be able to shame the Republicans? I guess the biggest question here, since really the power in the Senate lies with Mitch McConnell and the Republicans, and they're the ones who are enabling Trump to do this, can they be shamed? Can they be influenced? You're listening to the Tom Hartman Programme. And if you call the Senate, call in and tell us what happened when you called that 202-224-3121 the number for the Senate switchboard. So we need to be thinking right now about how to Trump-proof the presidency in the future. I mean, Donald Trump is causing all kinds of chaos and disasters, and things are frankly I think going to get much worse before they get better. And I don't think they're going to get better until after January 21st or noon on January 20th, and that's assuming that absolute craziness doesn't happen. But there's a bunch of steps that we need to take, from recalibrating or fixing how we do our elections, to fixing how we handle money in politics, to fixing the pardon power of the presidency, to specifically saying that if a president is found to be a criminal, he or she can still be held to account. I mean, just straightforward stuff. And we need to be getting ready to do this. I lay it all out in a new video that you can find over at TomHartman.com. back. Tom Hartman here with you. And for our our geeky science uh, today, this is an amazing story. The body has a a molecule. It's called uh, TMAO, trimethylamine N-oxide. And TMAO is a marker that things are going on inside your body that can lead to heart disease if not being the thing itself. I'm not, I don't understand all the details of exactly how TMAO works in this regard, but there was a fascinating article published, a study published in the August 11th issue of the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. And they were looking at TMAO levels as well as blood cholesterol, blood pressure, and weight. And they were trying to figure out, you know, what dietary factor will have a big influence on these things. Because TMAO means, you know, higher TMAO levels, greater risk of a heart attack. And then, of course, blood cholesterol, blood pressure, and weight. We all know all the things that those are associated with. And so, this is a 16-week study where they compared, they had people two meals a day eat either red meat or vegetarian meat, you know, uh, Beyond Meat or Impossible Burgers, basically, you know, these plant-based meat products. And each group did it. Half the group for eight weeks would eat vegetarian burgers and the other half would eat the meat burgers and then vice versa for the second eight weeks and they compared them. Two servings of meat or plant-based alternatives every single day for 16 weeks. And what they found And I'm quoting from this, uh, people with elevated TMAO have a 60% higher risk for adverse cardiovascular attacks, such as heart attacks. And uh, this from the study, the uh, the, uh, researchers observed that participants who ate the red meat diet during the first eight-week phase had an increase in TMAO, while those who ate the plant-based diet did not. They go on to say health benefits conveyed from plant-based alternatives extended to weight and levels of LDL cholesterol, the bad cholesterol. Participants' level of LDL cholesterol, these are the people who were eating the the vegan meat, you know, the, the vegetarian meat. Participants' levels of LDL cholesterol dropped on average 10 milligrams per deciliter. That's, you know, the score that they give you. And, oh, your cholesterol is, you know, 122. Well, it dropped by 10 points, basically. Which is not only statistically significant, but clinically significant, too. Right, a, a measurable reduction in heart disease from cholesterol. In addition, participants lost two pounds on average during the plant-based portion of the diet. And they're still eating everything they want, as much as they want. They just basically went vegan. It's amazing. So... Anyhow, our, our, uh, our story for the day. Let's pick up some of your phone calls. Cheryl in Milwaukee, Oregon. Hey, Cheryl, what's up? Oh, boy.
1: <laughs> well, I believe that uh, Trump is already setting up this country to take it over. And one of those things is he is billeting uh, his special, what I call them, or special troops in federal buildings and towns.
2: Yeah, the it's federal good. troops here in Portland have not like yet left.
1: That's right, and he could sneak more in and more in and more in until he has. He's building the whole company.
2: Yeah,
1: we were the first demonstration, but he has said he's doing them in other other places. He's done them in Chicago. Mm-hmm. You set them up, and then on the day you specify, you just simply take over the country. Yeah. And put them in every city that you think is going to be a problem for you.
2: Yep. I think that's entirely think it, possible, I think, Cheryl.
1: I think we're we're unwise to keep saying if Trump does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is he's doing it now and we need to get us on the ball to counter whatever it is that he's putting up.
2: Yeah. I am with you. George in Palm Desert, California. Hey George, what's on your mind today?
3: okay i got a little bit of good news i think because i too wring my hands over this traitor trying to stay in the white house but i don't know if you saw bill maher last week and he interviewed colonel lawrence wilkerson who served on the joint chiefs of staff with colin powell
2: yeah wilkerson's uh, been on this program many times
3: oh okay well he did say friday night that if uh trump called out his paramilitary goon squads or anything like that he said that the army will be dispatched and will take care of the situation albeit with a lot of bloodshed but as far as i'm concerned that would be a great day to get all those guys to you know surround the white house try to take it over and then have them take on the u.s military
2: yeah, anything that involves bloodshed in my in my world is not a good day. But I get what Wilkerson is saying, and I think that it's probably true. I'm just concerned that it's not going to um, to reach that point. I, you know, there's two scenarios to be concerned about. One is Trump steals the election, or Trump claims that he won the election, and he's got you know, and the Republican Party goes along with it even though he didn't win the election. I mean, this is what happened in 2000 when, when the Brooks Brothers riot happened down in Georgia, in uh, Florida. You had Tom DeLay sending his staffers down there along with Brett Kavanaugh and uh, John Roberts, and they were protesting, saying, you know, stop the count, stop the count. George Bush is president. When Al Gore actually yeah, yeah. won Florida, as we later learned. And, well, and that's you my concern. <laughs> Yeah, is that, you know, I mean, the the Republican Party's already stolen one election. They did it in 2000 uh, by, you know, using propaganda and lies. NBC had called the election for Al Gore, you know, and then and then George W. Bush's cousin on Fox News said, oh, no, no, we think George Bush won. And that was when it all went to hell. George, thanks for the call.
4: You're listening to Tom Hartman.
2: Hey, we have a new video up over at TomHartman.com. It's astonishing. Just think about this. This year alone, with this one source of revenue, according to Senator Bernie Sanders, quote, This year alone, we could fund tuition-free college for all, eliminate child hunger, ensure clean drinking water for every American household, build half a million affordable housing units, provide face masks for everybody, produce the protective gear and medical supplies our health workers need for the pandemic, and fully fund the U.S. post office. Now, what is this magical thing that we could do that would produce enough money to do all these things? fund the Internal Revenue Service. Republicans have cut its funding so badly since 2010 that fully a third of their enforcement is no longer happening. And tax cheats have walked off. They're basically refusing to pay over $260 billion in taxes this year. You can hear the whole thing over at TomHartman.com. Sandra in Bennington, Nebraska. Hey, Sandra, what's up?
1: Hi, I just had a question. I was arguing with someone online the other day about the Trump $300, you know, extra for unemployment, and right. supposedly 100 from the states if they could pay it. She was saying that uh, that's on top of what the states already pay in unemployment.
2: But that's correct.
1: I, I just I wondered about that because an awful lot of people they've already been on unemployment. They they've used up what they were going to get, and so they have none of that anymore.
2: That's correct. If your unemployment benefits have expired, and during the Bush administration, they cut long-term unemployment from two years down to one year, and I think they gave states the ability to cut it even more, because I know that some states it's only six months. So if your unemployment benefits have expired, you don't get anything. And if you are drawing unemployment, you would get the extra $300 out of the FEMA funds plus the $100 coming from your state if your state chooses to participate. And by the way, right. it'll probably take most states two or three months to be able to process this money because instead of taking money you out know. of the Treasury and doing, doing it the normal way, they're taking money out of FEMA. And it's a whole brand new thing that they're going to have to reprogram their computers and everything. I can't see any state doing it. Nobody's going to see any money in their paychecks. And I think over the next few weeks, as people notice that their paychecks are still you know, half of what they were or less in some cases, uh, because that six hundred dollars a week has gone away, people are going to figure out that Donald Trump has been lying to them—that he's just running another con. You know, which is what he's what he does for a living. This guy has been a con yeah. artist <laughs> since he was a kid. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's Sandra, sure. thank you for
2: the call. You know, always good to fact check. Thank you very much, Jordan in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hey, Jordan, what's up?
3: Awesome. I want to speak for the black delegation. We are not voting for Kanye West. And my question for you uh, arose when Benedict Donald appointed. Uh, the joy at the USPS. If he is only appointing people that financially support him, what is the difference between us and Russia?
2: Well, increasingly, that difference is getting smaller and smaller. And it's not just Russia, it's us and any authoritarian power. If you really want to see the formula, Google my name and Viktor Orban and or just the word Hungary uh, should pop it up. I wrote a piece for Salon a while back. In fact, I retweeted it yesterday. Um, uh, okay. A couple of months ago, about the parallels, how how authoritarian governments, Orban in nine years took Hungary from being one of the most vibrant de- democracies in the European Union and a member, of, a full member of NATO, from that into being a uh, you know a failed state, a, uh, a one man strong man dictatorship essentially, and that's what Trump is doing. Jordan, did you say you're African American?
4: Correct. Yes. That's Do you think, think that that, that
2: any do you think that any consequential fragment of the African-American community is, is going to vote for Kanye West over, over Joe Biden? As typical, what
3: Trump does hurts Trump, and he'll still Republican voters. Those are Kanye supporters. That's what people don't understand.
2: Ah, uh, okay. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to backfire on him. Fascinating. Thank you, Jordan. Great to hear from you. Bill in St. Helens, Oregon. Bill, you, you got the last minute and a half. What's up?
6: Yeah, hi, Tom. You know, there's nothing more sacred in this country than the vote because it's literally the only way we can hold our elected officials accountable. And one party, as you mentioned a few moments ago, one party has actively suppressed the vote for over two decades now. Now, I follow Greg Palat. Four decades. Religious. Yeah, well, I'm just saying that I'm saying since 2000. It was so overt, it was was undeniable. 2000 was a wholesale theft of of the presidency by, by the Republicans. But that's not my point. My point is... I hear people giving lip service to us. I've written my representatives. I said, "Why aren't you doing anything?" This is a crime against representative democracy. There's no greater crime going on in this country right now than this absolute, you know, this absolute attempt to overthrow the will of the people uh, on, at, in every single election, and that's essentially what they're doing. And yet, CBS, ABC, NBC, uh, MSNBC. Lip service. I hear people talking about it in passing. And then we put someone like Brian Kemp in a governorship after clearly stealing an election. The man should be in prison, not in the governor's office. I I don't understand what's going on in this country, Tom, that we can't Talk about the crimes going on against our elections. I, I'm, I'm mind boggled. I'm speechless.
2: Yeah, I am too, Bill. I am too, and I think that the Democrats need to be screaming a lot, lot louder. Uh, and uh, you know, and of course, every time they do, the Republicans come out and say, "Oh, they just want illegal immigrants to vote" or some other BS like that. Bill, thank you for the call. It is outrageous. Thanks so much for being with us today. Remember, there is a lot you can do. And we've talked about a lot of it during this program. We can be active, even if we're housebound. You know, so get out there, get active, tag, your it. Help make something happen. and uh, And try to lift somebody up today. You know, find somebody that you can just, like, make them smile, okay? Or yourself. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. Be good to yourself and others.
4: You've been listening to Tom Hartman.